The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, what a weighty thing that we are doing this morning. That we are coming before a holy God. I don't know why all those songs had your holiness in them. But it's the thing I'm feeling the most this morning. What a privilege that we who are anything but holy, who are weak and frail, who are vulnerable, who are sinners, can have a relationship with you. And a relationship that's not defined by fear or pain or sorrow, but grace. Lord, thank you. It's not enough, but it's the only thing we can offer. Thank you that you've saved us, that you sent your son to take on this, to take on flesh, to enter into our suffering, to bear the weight of the suffering that we cannot, we could not bear, which is your wrath, to offer us hope to, de- to uh, declare upon us a righteousness that we could never attain on our own. Lord, help us to never uh, presume upon that grace, to assume that we can look to any other place, to, to, in our minds, take you off of your high and holy throne and make you one of us. Lord, humble us. Thank you for this morning for this opportunity to look at your word, to gather as a body, as, as a, a body that we can say we're all broken and yet in you we are reconciled. We have been made new. Lord, be with me as I get to open up your word and declare it to us all. Strengthen my mind and heart and help us to walk out of here as we say every Sunday, but are trusting and loving you. In your son's name, amen. You can have a seat. I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at the the churches in there. I don't think we're going to get all the way through it because I'm going to be gracious to our children's ministry volunteers and end on time, though my notes aren't going to be finished. One of the questions I've often asked myself is how much has Christ changed me? I've matured in life, I'm a different individual than I was when I was a child, but how much of that was just basic maturity and how much of that is because I, I have the spirit inside of me, that the Lord has been transforming my heart and mind, that it's his work in me, not just my work in myself. How do I look different from the world around me? How does my relationship with Christ, how I operate in this world? These questions, so many books and podcasts and sermons have been directed towards. Now that we have Christ, what does our everyday life look like? Does it stay the same? How do we change? The gospel has shown us that God has always been saving a people to himself. 
He's always been calling a people to be set apart for the glory of God. We see this in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. When God calls Israel out of the land of Egypt, he truly set them apart from every other nation and gave them a set of laws so that they would look different from everyone around them. They were called to be set apart not only to God, but also from their neighbors. That's why you have all of these traditions and rituals and, and laws that you might go, why do they do that? It is there for the reason so that people can look at them and go, you're different than me. What do you have that I don't have? And the answer to that is a relationship with God. But in the New Testament, we see in this redemptive story, while, while the, people have been, the people of God have always been called to set apart, no longer do we live a life separated from our neighbors. No longer is God saving us and saying, now that you have me, go live in this commune out in the wilderness by yourself. Now that you have me, go only surround yourself by, by people who are also in the family of God like he did with Israel. Now in this New Testament, the way that the gospel lives out is that we are a people separated unto God, but we don't live a life by ourselves. We live in this world. In this new covenant, in the New Testament, we are no longer proselytes baptized into a Jewish tradition and then ushered off, as I said, into some nation who doesn't uh, interact with other nations. Rather, we are individuals baptized into the household of God, a household that contains every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we say, live among them, but don't be of them. Live among them, but be be controlled by a different thing by God. Live among them, but don't fall into the same snares and pitfalls that they fall into. Thus, from the very beginning of the church age, we're forced to deal with questions surrounding Christ and culture. Questions that, in, in my mind, all start with how. Like, how do we live for Christ in a culture that rejects him? How do we live in this body of death while being alive in the spirit of God? How do we fight against sin while being surrounded by it? How do we live normal lives, I put that in quotes, but normal lives, going to school and work and jobs, all the other stuff, while being bombarded by a, a world that rejects the truth that we hold so dear? This is what takes us to our overview of the churches in Revelation. Last week I opened up this really short series with referencing how our Father, God, being a good Father, the perfect Father, declares us not only to have a new identity in Christ, but also new characteristics that He desires us to have. We discussed the importance of not only what He has done for us in Christ, but also what we're called to do because of that. And that brought us to the book of Revelation and to the seven churches. These churches stand as an example for us. They stand as an example for us because they're living this, this life that we're living, this Christ and culture life. How in the world are you going to be a person who lives in this body of death and yet alive to the Spirit? And, and how are you going to live this life that's called to a higher calling? But at the same time, you live in this world with sinners. Well, we get to learn from their example. I was thinking this week, a wise individual learns from the failures of others. A wise individual is going to observe what's happening around them and then course correct. We do this all the time. If you see the state trooper pull somebody over on the side of the highway, what do you inherently do? He's off that accelerator. If you, if you see somebody walk through mud, you instinctively try to find some other path. If you, you know, see your sibling be scolded for something, the wise child, I was not always a wise child. Actually, no, wait, I got the scoldings. My sisters got to learn from me. The wise child would say, wait, mom and dad didn't like that. So maybe 
I should not fall into the same pitfall because I see the pain they're going through and it's not worth the pain. We get that same opportunity to observe these seven churches in the book of Revelation. They're living the same battle as we're living living for Christ in a dark world. And we're going to see this morning, just as we saw this week, how God intends for his children to live a life for him in a world of darkness. Last week, we looked at the first three churches. We saw from Ephesus that Jesus sees what you truly love. And we saw that a characteristic of a Christian is one who is deeply in love with Christ. We saw from the church of Smyrna that Jesus knows about the pain you're enduring. And we saw that the characteristic of a Christian is one who knows where their hope comes from. And we saw from Pergamum that Jesus knows what you really believe and that the characteristic of a Christian is one who remains faithful to God's law. So, we got four more churches to go. I don't know how far we're going to make it, but let's head into it. Thyatira says this, To the church, to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. When you, when I read these words, the son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, the thing that comes to mind is the holiness and power of God. Every time my eyes like flame of fire, I'm just think about every movie that depicts some, you know, amazing creature. Some, at some point, fire's coming from their eyes. It's, just, it's this image that all creatures have in their head of power. And so the Son of God is saying to the words of the Son of God, who is all, who has all power and all holiness, he knows you. He knows your works and your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. The words that Jesus sees you, should be, in my mind, the scariest words for any individual. Because I try to cover my weaknesses all the time. I mean, do we not? I mean, in fact, if somebody doesn't try to do that, we say that they're a little crazy. They're probably, they're probably putting themselves out there so often. I don't want you to see where I struggle. I don't want you to see where I'm weak. I don't want you to see where I fail. And yet we read here that Jesus sees that. I've often said, and I truly believe that some of the scariest verses in the entire Bible are Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of the Lord is, act, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, and joining the marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of man. And no creature, that means all of us are included in that, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And Thyatira heard, I know you. I know all that you do, your works and your love and your faith. I know your heart. I see that you've been faithful. I see that you have patient endurance. I see that you've been growing, that your latter works exceed the first works. But if we learned anything from last week, we know there's a but coming. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent from her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great 
tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. You know, I've, I said this before I'll, I'll, last week. I'll say it this week as well. Imagine sitting here hearing, hey, your church is referenced in this letter. They, John talks about you. Jesus is references you. And you go like, I want to know what Jesus is going to say about me. Imagine sitting in the seats hearing this letter written. Imagine if this woman whom Jesus calls Jezebel, whether that's her real name or not, you're just indicating this individual who is luring those individuals away from God to the sinfulness of the world. Imagine her sitting, hearing this in the midst. Imagine those individuals who have been lured away from her. All of a sudden, they go, Jesus sees me and is talking about me and is, a- and is actively, publicly rebuking me. What's going on here? Thyatira was a politically and culturally marginalized city. It was a city that could probably be best described as blue collar to its core. In fact, the major economic industry of this city was, um, was, was a metalwork, which is why I think he actually says the fire of flame and his feet are burnished bronze because he's actually drawing back upon um, elements that these individuals would understand. But because this was a blue-collar city, one of the things that, one of the ways that the economic structure of the city was, was um, kind of structured was through guilds, unions. I know guild's an odd word. It's through unions. And each of these guilds, each of these unions would be attached to a certain deity, various gods. This was a Greek city. They had many gods. They didn't have a problem with having a god. They just had a problem with only having one god. They had all of these gods and, and it would be like the silversmiths had this god and the bronze workers had that god and the, and the fires had this, I don't know, all of the various guilds had these various gods, these deities that were attached to them and each of their guilds would be required to pay homage to their god. Think union. If you're part of a union, what do you got to do? You got to pay the dues to the union. And their dues would be to go to these temples and to worship through sexual immorality and and offer sacrifices to idols. And these individuals in the church who had their hearts changed by God were at this point going, I know what God says. I know God says don't commit sexual immorality. And I know God says don't sacrifice idol, don't offer sacrifices to idols. But in order for me to keep my job, in order for me to pay my bills, in order for me to put food on the table, I have to do these things. And this woman Jezebel obviously comes in and starts to teach and seduce these servants away to practice such things. And I am sure that the way that she went about offering this, practicing this, is to say, God knows your heart. He knows that the only reason you're doing this is because you just have to put food on the table. It's okay. God knows that you don't want to do it, but you have to do it. God knows that that if you could choose any other way to do it, you wouldn't choose that way. But clearly, in order to keep living a life, you must do this. You see this combination between Christ and culture? Their culture was forcing them to reject something that Christ says is, or to accept something that Christ rejects. And this woman Jezebel goes, it's okay. You don't have to worry about it. And so they blindly followed her under the guise of love and grace. Jesus knows you. This warning, though, demonstrates that Jezebel was actually right. God knew them. God saw them. Again, the scariest verse in the Bible is that God sees you. He sees you, and then he writes a letter and goes, you've missed it. A book I would commend to you is, is the book, I don't, 
I don't know if I, is the book that um, Amy Luke and Amy Haskins, the Amys in my life, are going to be studying through with our women's ministry. The book's called Blessed by Nancy Guthrie. She says this about this church. God did know their hearts. His eyes like a flame of fire saw into their soul to see exactly what their hearts were like. And what he saw was not innocent and good intentions, but spiritual idolatry worthy of eternal punishment. Sexual sin is spiritual idolatry. Idolatry is spiritual, or idolatry is spiritual adultery. No one can persist in sexual sin and idolatry, excusing it either as unchosen orientation or basic human needs, assuming that God knows your heart and he will forgive me and accept that he or she will not be burned by the lake of fire. This is what Jezebel was doing. He, she was adding again to the law of God. She wasn't saying God's wrong. She's saying God will understand. What does the church of Thyatira teach us? Good intentions aren't enough. Good intentions God looks at and goes, okay, no, it's my law. You know, it's interesting. Thyatira is the exact opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus was, I see that you do not, that you have discernment and do not uh, tolerate heresy, but you have no love. Thyatira is, I see your love. I see that you pour out those love on other people. I see that your church is known for love. I see that love, but you are unwilling to draw the land, a line in the sand and say, this is sin. I can't go there. This is heresy. See, this shows us that we need both love and truth inside our church. It continues, verse 24. Not everyone fell into this sin. You know, there were some people sitting there going, this is for me, he's talking to me. I think I need to learn this. But 24, but the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keep my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Who has earthen pots are broken into pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. I will give them. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. What does God say to the rest of them? And to all of them? Hold fast what you've heard from me. Hold fast to the words of truth that you have. These are the most comforting words to anyone who is, who is being offered this. Um, I either choose Christ or culture. I either choose Christ or something else. I, cho I choose Christ or something that I love dearly. And the reason that hold fast is the most comforting words because he points and says, I know this earth is going to dissatisfy you. I know this earth is going to hurt you. I know this earth is going to, to disappoint you, but look for what is coming. The hope that we have in Christ is not one that this world, while, while we live in, in, with bodies uh, being simultaneously saint and sinner, our hope is not found here. Our hope is found in, in heaven. Understanding that all that we need in life and death is found in Christ Jesus. And if we can learn anything from the early church, they took that to heart. They were burned at the stake and thrown before lions and persecuted and martyred. Why? Because they knew you can kill this body of death. You can kill this body, but I'll be raised in glory. What, where, where does Jesus point Thyatira to? Hold fast to those things that you have once been told. 
So what's the characteristic of the church of Thyatira? Characteristic of a Christian is one who does not tolerate sin and heresy. Moving on. It's tough, I know. Church of Sardis. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The worst day in school for me, because I was not a scholar, was the day that the report cards came out. And, and, and students, it used to be that you'd, ha- you'd be handed a paper report card and you had to walk it home and give it to your parents and say, can you sign this because I got to take it back. So there's this moment you're like, when am I going to explain to them these grades? At least that was for me. Again, not the scholar. I know some of you. Hey, mom, I got all A's. That was not me. The worst part is when you re- receive a report card, you think you're doing well in the class. You think you've got it all together? You think you're passing with flying colors and then all of a sudden you open up that piece of paper and you're like, ooh, this can hurt. I gotta do some work. What I thought was an A was not an A. I think that's Sardis. I think they've been sitting here saying, again, hey, your, your church is named in here. What's Jesus gonna say about you? And they go, hey, we're gonna pass this with flying colors. Why? Because we have the reputation of being alive. We have, the repu- we have the reputation of being on fire. We have the reputation of ace in this church thing. And then it comes out and realizes, no, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Want to know what I learned from this? Living a life checking the boxes for God does not, e- does not equal living a life for God. They have the reputation of doing all the right things. As a pastor, this one hurts. Because as a pastor, I mean, I participate in so many meetings. I go to so many retreats. I listen to so many sermons. I preach so many sermons. I do so many things that I think I'm good to go because I've done these things. And then I hear checking the box is not enough. Look how it continues. Wake up. Strengthen what remains in an and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. What's their issue? Their issue is that they are lethargic for God. They're going through the motions, but there's no love. They're spiritually weak. And notice what the remedy that God offers them is. Endurance. Practice. Do the things that you once did. Now, I was talking with Damien about this earlier. Just imagine like Ephesus has this description when Paul wrote to it of like, I know your love, I know your passion, I know all the things that, that you do for God. And then 50 years later, what's this church known for? I know all the things that you do for God, but you have no love. It just demonstrates how easy it is f- to go from one place of being good, on fire, doing what, what God has called you to do. And so quickly you just drift away and you turn around one day and go, I've missed it. I think probably the same thing happened with Sardis. They were on fire. They had all that passion that any young Christian has of like, this thing changed my life. And then suddenly they're like, oh yeah, yeah, God, 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 whatever. 
just go through the motions. And what is the prescription that Jesus gives them? Training for righteousness. Train yourself for godliness. I think of 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10, as, as Paul is writing to Timothy in his pastoral epistle, he says this, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a, be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For a bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds, holds promise for the present life and also to the one to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What's Christ calling Sardis to do? Keep fighting the good fight. Here's what that means. It's so easy for us to look back at our previous accomplishments at our previous passion, at our previous love, at our previous joy in Christ and say, I have those things now. But it's so easy to walk away from those things. It's like, yeah, you had them then. But are they true about you now? Have you walked away and actually just become apathetic towards the things of God? Or has the faith and the devotion and the desire that God calls us to, has that remained in you? Again, not all have fallen into this, spiritual laziness. And this has been the one part that I have, I think, laughed at the most this week. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. I love that image. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garment, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father, before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How lazy did you have to be to soil your own garment? Poop your own pants. Just put it out there. I mean, a child does it because they don't know any better. So there's that. You can have that aspect. But how lazy do you have to be? They go, nah, I won't do anything. I'll just go here. That's that's what he calls these people who are apathetic and lethargic towards God. You have soiled your own garments. You did not need to be this dead and lazy inside, and yet you are. What's he calling to? Wake up. Get up. Clean up and keep fighting the good fight of faith. Maybe some of you here, if you, if you take the, a proper accounting of yourself and, you're, and you, you, know, you, you, you give yourself the smell test, you're like, what smells? You. You got to clean up. Because you've allowed yourself to look back at your past actions and go, I'm good. But you haven't actually taken into account what Christ calls us to. Godliness. So what's the characteristic of a Christian? It's one who trains himself for Godliness. Church number three. This will be the last one for our day. Philadelphia. Jesus knows which kingdom holds your devotion. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, this is verse seven, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. 
I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my words and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Philadelphia was the smallest of the churches. And what do you say to the smallest of the churches? Though you are vastly outnumbered, though you are scared because you are surrounded by the enemy of darkness, don't hide. Don't bury your head. Don't, don't assume that just because you are vastly outnumbered that the Lord is not by you. Pick your head up. Look at the fields that are ripe for harvest before you because that's what he just told the church of Philadelphia. You think you can't do anything. I'm holding the door open. And the Lord is gonna use you, you small and significant number of people to proclaim a gospel that is going to take hold in this city. That's what he said to this church. That's why, he, that's why he starts with, to the words of the one who is holy and true, to the, who has the key of David, who opens and will not shut and who shuts and will not open. I mean, that is a description of, of one who has fulfilled all that is required for a covenant and is now offering that openly. And they are sitting here saying, yeah, but these individuals in the synagogue, basically the Jews are greater than us, are stronger than us, have a louder voice than us. The darkness seems like it's, it's, it's too strong for us. How in the world are we ever going to survive? And their thought was just keep your head down and do nothing. And yet Jesus comes in and says, what are you doing? All power and authority has been given you, not based upon your strength or your number, but because of me. So go proclaim openly. And instead of living in fear because you are few, live boldly for the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus is in control. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To this small, frightened, from our earthly standpoint, insignificant number of people, what does he say? I'm gonna use you to spread my name boldly in this city. And imagine just sitting there when they get this letter and they're thinking like, Jesus pointed us out. Jesus is writing to us? Jesus sees us? Because isn't that what we feel when we're going through those moments of like, am I all alone here? I feel like I am facing the world by myself and here Jesus goes, no, I see you and I'm going to use you. I think this goes back to just one of the elements of the gospel that we continually see that the, the Lord continually uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that he gets the glory. Even in church, Even in evangelism, you might think I don't have the answer, I don't have the words to say, I don't have the answers to give, I don't, we we don't have the number of people to conquer this world that's out in front of us. And what does Jesus say? Well, yeah, because it's all me. I'm the one who conquers. I'm the one who draws people. I'm just using you. 
I, I know that these last couple of weeks have been, can be, I hope are hard to hear because I hope the Spirit is using His Word to convict you of areas in your life where you go, yeah, I think I've lost some things. I think I've missed some things. I think I, like these churches, have walked away from the Lord and I need to repent. But as I did last week, I want to end encouraging us all because this is heavy. And I know in one respect, you could be sitting there going, Ryan, stop. Stop with the burden. Stop with the, stop with the, with the, um, with um, the, confrontation. I can't take it anymore. Here's what I know about Jesus. That he is gentle to those whom he rebukes. Turn to Isaiah 42. I'm going to end with this this morning. Isaiah has several songs, servant songs. I think there's four in number. Do that off the top of my head. So I know there's at least four. This is the first of it. It's a song that is written by Isaiah about our Lord, about our Savior, describing whom he is. Here's how, here's how this first song goes. I'm going to read the first nine verses of this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom I sold delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, nor make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on this earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says, the, thus says God the Lord who created heaven and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to shut the eyes that are, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no one, nor my praise to carven idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare before they spring forth. I will tell you of them. You might be sitting here today convicted because you hear the words of Scripture and you go, you know what? I'm falling into the same trap as one of these churches. Or maybe even I'm falling into the trap of all of these churches. I've lost my first love. I've allowed sin to reign. I've sat quietly thinking that he couldn't use somebody as small as me. And yet what we hear from Psalm 42 and see throughout Scripture is the Lord continually uses the broken. And the Lord will be gracious with the broken. Just think, each and every one of these churches He's not questioning their churchhood. He's not saying, because you've done these things, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. What he's saying is, I get it. It's difficult to live in a world of darkness. I get it. The world blinds you to your sin. I get it. We're simultaneously a saint and a sinner, and therefore, because we're a sinner, we fall into these areas. He's not saying, because you failed, I'm no longer going to be faithful to you. What he's saying is, because you failed, repent. In a bruised reed, he will not break. In a 
faintly burning wick he will not quench. What's that mean? You can come to him even now as a believer and go, Father, I am sorry that I've messed up. I have missed it. I have been living blindly for years. Or I can't believe I've been doing this thing. And what's he going to do? He's going to offer grace. As we turn towards communion, it's a direct picture of the cross and all of the things that we are discussing here. What is the call that he has, Jesus has, as he's walking on this earth? Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This call is not for the people who can sit here and say, I haven't fallen into any of those sins. This call is not to sit here and say, you are beyond hope. This call is all can come to me who sit in this body of death and who feel the stain on their souls and who are tired of living this life that's being pulled in different directions and say, I will give you hope. If you're here this morning and you're feeling the tug on, on the Lord's, if you're feeling the Lord's tug on your heart, of like, yeah, I, I think I've missed some things. I would, I would declare to you, repent. And I can declare to you, repent, because I know that we have a gracious God who will forgive. As we turn towards communion, I pray, as, as we did last week, that this can just be a moment where there can be an honest evaluation of how things are going. Because as I said, the scariest verses in the Bible. He sees you. He knows you. You can't hide from him. And yet the person who sees you and knows you is willing to offer you the grace, and the hope, and the peace that you so desperately need. Let's pray and we can take this table together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for having the hard conversations with us. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin and at the same time, thank you for calling us to live a life as you intended us to live. Thank you for giving us the conviction of scripture that call us to repentance of where it needs to be had. Lord, I can see so much of our church in, in, in every single one of these in some way. I see every single one of these churches in my own heart. Lord, help us individually to be willing to take the first step to have an honest account between you and us about where we're at, where we're going, where do we need to repent and turn to you and then help us collectively as a body to be known not necessarily for our strength, to be known not for um, even the lack of weakness in us, but be known as a people who continually run to you Asking for forgiveness, understanding that you will offer it. Father, we take this table together. Help us to rest, knowing as the song that we sang before, all that is required of us is found in your son. 
and in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.